Hello, I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Stone Ape Reports, where I have conversations with those who have changed their lives with the power of psychedelics, as well as with those who help others change their lives. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Erica Siegel. Erica is the CEO and founder of Nest Harm Reduction. She is a professional harm reductionist, community organizer, and an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy researcher. We discussed a very important topic in this space, which is harm reduction, creating a safe container, understanding trauma, and so much more. So let's hear from Erica. Erica, thank you so much for coming here on the Stone Dave Reports. I'm uh, truly honored to have you here. Really looking forward to hearing what you have to say, because I talked to a lot of other stoned apes, you know, who are out there working with psychedelics, but I think it's important we talk to professionals like you who can, you know, really uh, educate us and, and help us understand what's going on out there. So before we jump in, just first of all, I wanted to thank you for, for coming on and sharing your expertise. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what led you, you know, I guess, Give us a little bit about what you do. Like, what what is harm reduction? What do you do, and why do you do it? Oh goodness! Is that too much of one question? How, how much time do you have? No, um, it's totally fine. Um, so I am a um, a licensed clinical social worker um, in the state of California. Um, I work as a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist. Um, I also, since COVID, um, I mostly do um, telehealth psychotherapy online um, hmm. to be safe. Um, and I also um, provide training in harm reduction um, to different organizations or groups um, who are, you know, working with people who are either using drugs or they themselves are a community that are using psychedelics and they want to figure out ways to um, implement more more safety um, or harm Mm -hmm. reduction techniques into their practice or into their community. Um, And that ranges anywhere from um, some people who are working in the plant medicine world to homeless shelters. Um, and oh, so wow. it's a really wide range of, of, of trainings that I'm able to give in harm reduction um, because it is such a, a wide reaching industry. Yeah. So what, why do you do this? I mean, we'll get into more details about what, what harm is and harm reduction, but, but what led you to, to get into this, this business? Oh, um, well, what led me? Um, I, <laughs> Interestingly enough, um, my background is um, I, I worked in restaurants, bars and restaurants. Um, I went to Cornell um, for my undergrad. I was at the hotel school and I always thought that um, I would uh, I, I like making people happy. That's basically mm. my, uh, like what I like to do. Um, and I always thought that through food or through experience in that way, I would be able to um, bring joy to people, which is totally true. Um, and also is kind of surfacey <laughs> and not very long lasting. Mm. Um, and, um, I, you know, was looking for ways to kind of satisfy my desire to like make long lasting change and long lasting happiness in people's lives. Um, and it kind of led me to social work, which then led me to, um, psychedelic healing, um, which then led me to harm reduction, which is making sure that people who are using drugs, whether they are psychedelics or not, but anybody who's using a, a mind altering substance has the tools to make informed choices, um, the education to know things about dosing and contraindications, and also knowing all of the risks and benefits that come along with choosing to use drugs. So why, why uh, psychedelics specifically? You know, I know you mentioned all drugs, and I'm not here to, to compare drugs or say one's better than, than the other. But in terms of this specific podcast, uh, you know, you went to Cornell, you're talking about the food industry, hospitality, and then you get into social work. Kind of what, what in your mind told you like, oh, I want, I want to be part of this, this psychedelic part of this whole thing. Oh, that was, I like totally just fell into that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I um, had finished grad school in 2010. 
um, and moved to Santa Cruz um, because I had an internship. I had a couple of friends that were living up in the Santa Cruz mountains, working in the cannabis industry. Um, and I was spending some time um, in Santa Cruz um, and I got a, an internship at family service agency um, up in Santa Cruz and I was providing community mental health. And while I was there, the MAPS office is there as well. And so socially, I ended up meeting some people who worked for MAPS um, and they were like, hey, have you ever heard of this? Oh, you're a therapist. Are you interested in this? And so I actually came about it just as like a happenstance because I was living in Santa Cruz and it was through mutual friends. Um, and then it was also a, um, that they were working on a project, um, called the Zendo project, um, which was, which is a harm reduction organization that provides, um, psychedelic crisis support at music festivals such as Burning Man. And since I was already part of the Burning Man culture, it happened, it was just like an intersection of, hey, do you want to work on this project with us? Um, and I said, sure, because I was a social worker and I love community design. Um, and then I became the volunteer coordinator for the Zendo project from 2015, 16. Um, and then I left in June of 2019 to start my own company. Wow. So really you cut your teeth in that whole Zendo project. Um, yeah, I did. Um, I did a lot of work um, with the Zendo and then also um, providing sanctuary services for other music festivals. Um, I've probably uh, managed about 40 sanctuary spaces over the course wow. of the past seven years, um, all dealing with psychedelic crisis. And so I've had to deal with everything and anything under the sun. Um, positive, negative, um, uh, you know, we've had to deal with a couple of times where there've been fatalities at events and what oh. that's like to, to community integrate. Um, and then all, everything from, you know, full psychedelic breakthroughs and God experiences. And so pre COVID, I pretty much spent the past six years, um, working in crisis psychedelic experience, like mental health support. Wow. So when we talk about harm reduction with psychedelics, what, what does harm mean? Oh, goodness. Um, really anything that can, um, anything that can cause um, like a adverse reaction to a substance. Um, I mean, is it like different? Or, we hear, we hear about... We hear about bad trips, you know, is a, is a harmful experience um, something different than, say, a difficult one or a bad trip? Um, no, I mean, I don't like using the term bad trip because um, I feel like there's positive benefit out of anything, right. um, especially out of these really challenging experiences. They can be really transformative. They can really help you move through something that you've been stuck on for a really long time. Um, and so I think it's not only personal harm, but also like societal harm. So you know that you can create a safe container or, you know, what proper dosing measures. Um, and so when we talk about that, uh, especially let's talk about LSD, you know, start off at a hundred mics, don't eat a 10 strip for your first time. Like knowing what dosing is, is just part of reducing the harm, whether that's, you know, through overdose or societal harm or, or, you know, getting into a physical altercation with somebody else because you're out of control. Mm. Um, so there's all of these different things that can cause societal harm, um, that can cause interpersonal harm. And so really what I try to do as a harm reductionist is to provide education and provide the tools for people to be properly prepared um, to engage in psychedelic or drug use, and then also what to do in case of emergency, you know, things like, uh, especially in like the ketamine world or the intranasal ketamine world, being really concerned about things like drug contamination and fentanyl contamination mm. and things like that. So making sure that people do, even if you're engaging in psychedelic 
use, there are some psychedelics that have that, you know, could theoretically cause um, harm to yourself, society, your, your relationships. So what are some of the biggest risks for somebody who is exploring psychedelics outside of a, a medical situation, you know, in a non-therapeutic, non-medical setting? What, what are some of the risks that, that they should be aware of? Um, well, I mean, one of the biggest risks um, is the fact that we live in a prohibition state or a prohibition country, mm-hmm. and there's not safe access to drugs. And so sometimes when you're getting things, you actually don't know what you're getting. Um, there are ways to, to test that. Um, there are drug testing kits that are available. Um, I always encourage anybody who's engaged in any psychedelic use intentional recreational is to like go back to your sources you know if you're getting substances from somebody it's like oh like when was this made who made it like how did you get it has Mm. it been tested asking really all of those questions um, to make sure that you're an informed user Um, and especially in psychedelic world there's a lot of people out there who are who are growing their own mushrooms Um, Mm -hmm. There are cities that now have plant medicine, decriminalization, Ann Arbor, um, D.C., uh, Portland. And so there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be kind of these um, closet growers for their own psychedelic healing. And so being able to access information about potency or, or use, I think, is really important. Um, Also being able for people to kind of know how to create a safe container. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's asking a friend to come over and, and sit to sit with them or uh, like attend to them if they um, need that during their psychedelic healing. I am an advocate for never using substances alone. (laughs) Mm. Um, Always have somebody around in case something goes wrong in case, like there have been instances where there's been somebody who's, you know, having a great, uh, experience on high dose psychedelics and then they like step on a piece of glass and now their foot is bleeding and they can't take care of themselves. And so, mm. you know, at, like just little tiny things, like what happens when the fire alarm goes off in your house? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so just having somebody there who can help you and somebody there who you have an agreement with who can reflect back to you like, Hey, you know, what you're doing is scaring me, or I think you're going out too far, or let's really talk about what your use looks like. Yeah. Um, and so being able to be aware of, you know, substance u- disordered using of substances. And I know we all like to say that psychedelics are, are non-addictive. Um, and, um, there is no physical dependence with some of them, but I definitely know people who are using them to the point where they are negatively impacting their relationships with other people. Mm. Um, and so in that scope of, you know, is this causing harm to your life? Like, are you, you know, like, going off and, and and like eating mushrooms with your friends in the wood every single weekend and not tending to the things that are important in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, and so just, you know, having somebody else in your community who can reflect back, who's like, Hey, like, you know, maybe reel it in and do some integration for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's kind of another question I had about harm reduction. You know, you hear, about integration. You know, everybody's talking about integration these days. And I think it may be um, confirmation bias on my part, but in the early days, it seemed like, oh, go have your experience, come back and then integrate. And now I feel like we're hearing integration coaches saying, you know, no, you have to do preparation work. And then there has to be possibly some assistance or sitting during the experience. And then integration afterwards is, is harm reduction kind of the same you know, you're educating people ahead of time. There's something going on like a trip sitter during, and then there's integration afterwards. Is harm reduction there throughout that, uh, all those phases? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Harm reduction is there through all of those phases. And listen, I'm not here to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do. And Mm -hmm. there have been people out there like 
brewing cactus and drinking it and walking through the Mojave without anybody else around. And they're going to continue to do so. Um, Mm. And, um, and, you know, would people benefit from kind of going through and taking a look at themselves and figuring out what their intentions are? And like, why are you engaging in this practice? Mm. Like, what's the purpose of you communing with this medicine? And there are some people out there who are like, because I want to party. Great. Party on it. Like, but like, be clear with your intentions. Um, And so it's really important to make sure that you um, check in with yourself. And if you're going to go down a medicinal healing path with psychedelics, there are so many tools that you can do to get yourself prepared to be able to have a relationship with that medicine. Like, um, like what, do you, what do you mean? What are you referring to when you say there are so many tools available? Um, just being able to like, uh, I think therapy or working with an integration coach is, mm. is one step of those um, journaling um, you know, modifying your diet, especially with ayahuasca, um, specifically as a healing medicine, there are a lot of, um, ayahuascaros who, you know, require people who engage in that medicine to have a specific diet for seven days or 30 days leading up to it. Um, I know some people, um, who I'm friends with who, you know, would do, like 90 day dietas before going and drinking medicine. Um, And that was what they felt like their body needed to be prepared to be able to go through that experience. And so there are things like dietary changes. There are, um, I'm a strong believer that if you're going to go into a psychedelic space, um, like don't, read the news for 24 hours at a time, like (laughs) stop watching law and order SVU. Like it's just going to cause this like cosmic toxic, um, like the world is bad thing going on in your brain because those are the images that you're constantly putting in front of yourself. And so having a digital detox before you engage in medicine, um, Um, I think those are really great tools. So besides the educational point, it's like a, how are you, what are you doing to get yourself prepped to be able to go and, and have a um, positive, beneficial, like transformative experience. Yeah. And, and that would come with intentions. Like you said, Mm -hmm. if you're looking for this positive transformational experience, it's kind of like, well, what's, what's the why behind that? Why are you doing this? Right. Um, or if you're looking to heal trauma or. Yeah. And that's, you know, trauma is an interesting point. I have, I actually have a question I was going to ask a little later, but I think I'll just jump into that. Um, I talked to so many people on this podcast who, who are dealing with, you know, depression, addiction, suicidality, anxiety. I mean, you name it. Right. And it's almost like, it's like on TV, you watch, you know, the, the intervention show with, with addiction, or you watch my 600 pound life with people who are, are you know, medically da- in danger from their obes- obesity. Yeah. And it seems like you always wait for that moment in the show or oh, hoarders, right? Hoarders is another one. You wait for that moment in the show where they finally get to it and that there's a big trauma. I was, I was abused. I lost, you know, somebody important to me. What, there's like some piece of trauma that is like the thorn in their life, their life's foot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you bring up trauma and we talk about this and harm reduction and dangerous experiences. Um, so where does trauma play, play in all of this? I, I you know, I, I browsing through your website. I saw, you know, you mentioned trauma working with trauma. So I don't know if even I have a good question to ask you, but talk to us about like what trauma means. What's, what's trauma's place in this, this whole thing that we're talking about here. Um, uh, yeah. So (laughs) what is trauma? Um, it's like such a big question. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Keep throwing these big general questions at you, but, um, but now tell us all about trauma. Right. Um, so I'm a trauma informed provider. I've been trained in trauma interventions and the population that I work with in, uh, it with the clinical trial is people who have PTSD. Hmm. Um, and so, Let's talk about trauma for a second. I think that everybody has a trauma history. I think that being born 
is traumatic and like shocking to your nervous system. Um, and I think that, so like everybody has a trauma history, whether mm. it was you were, you know, abused by your parents or like you had some attachment things and your mom left you at kindergarten for the first time and you thought you were abandoned and you cried all day. Mm. Like, because your experience is real. You thought you were left just like not to, you know, be contextual. It's like what, what um, representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just, you know, she did an Instagram live of her telling the narrative of her experience of trauma during the Capitol insurrection. Yeah. Um, and I was like, you know, hooting, hollering and clapping through the whole thing because I think it's so important for people who experience the traumatic event, like thinking you're going to die um, or, or being in a traumatic car accident or surviving a fire or like getting like uh, getting divorced, like all of those are traumas. Um, and what happens is normally, like normal humans who I don't know who's normal these days post COVID, right. but, right. but like normal regulated human beings um, can go about their day and they can control their emotions and their outbursts and like whether or not they're, they're crying or screaming, they can regulate their bodies. Um, I really like talking about, um, this being self-regulated as cool, calm, collected, connected, right? So you can, you're not, your body is cool. You're energetically calm. Like you have your things together. You can go about your day and you're connected to yeah. your support system. You're connected to your loved ones. You're connected to your workplace. Um, you're connected to your spirituality and, um, over time, we go um, through our lives and there are certain things that dysregulate us. We either become, which is our fight or flight, right? Okay. So we get really activated, you know, maybe we're driving in traffic and we like witness an accident or, or something like that. And then all of a sudden we become dysregulated for a minute. And then we take some deep breaths and we get ourselves back into our cool, calm, collected, connected, um, self-regulated bubble. But over time, um, the more times we have a traumatic incidence, the smaller our bubble becomes. And then all of the sudden we're consistently being dysregulated. And so now we're hypervigilant, we're on edge, we're angry when we used to not be angry, we're like mm. snapping at the people who we love. And it's just like, we have this like negative response to trauma all the time, um, to the point where it affects people so, so significantly that like, you know, it could be that they've had, you know, 20 minor traumas, and then one trauma hits and they become dysregulated and they can't get themselves back into that bubble. Um, mm. We hear this a lot with like uh, first responders and, and firemen where, where, you know, they've run into a building, a burning building a hundred times and then they run into it a hundred and one times and then they just like, they shut down and they can't do it anymore. <laughs> they shrunk down their bubble. Right. They shrunk down their bubble so much that they can no longer regulate it. And so there are things that we can do to increase our bubble, mindfulness, self-care, eating a healthy diet. Um, and, and people put in that category also psychedelic use because mm. psychedelic use helps us build that bubble um, when it is done in a container that, um, that feels safe to the person um, and is done, you know, in moderation with the correct dosing and ideally a support person. But people are, are out there, you know, doing ketamine trochies virtually for virtual support and things like that. Um, and there are plenty of people out there who are engaging in their own psychedelic healing um, without, uh, without a guide or without guidance. Um, and, and yeah, and so trauma comes up in this way of it kind of like the more you engage in regulatory practices like meditation, mindfulness, healthy eating, um, the more you grow that bubble. And so I think, especially with 
social media and the 24 hour news cycle and what's been happening um, in America, it's like every time you grab your phone, there's a possibility that you're going to get traumatized or like thrown a loop or like, you know, a uh, uh, breaking news and something horribly traumatic happens in the world. And we're inundated with it now every single day. Yeah. And I know I've talked to a couple of people, including my own therapist, who <laughs> when inauguration day came, a lot of us suddenly felt like a big trauma was lifted off of our shoulders that we didn't even know we were dealing with. Oh, and you, do you know that the word slept trended on Twitter? Because <laughs> everybody actually tweeted could sleep? like, oh my God, I slept for the first time in, or I slept so well last night. Yeah. Yeah. So I can understand that, that 24 hour news cycle and, and social media and these little needly traumas, you know, that can happen just regularly because when, when it finally got lifted after the four years of this constant, just negative, what crisis is going to come up, you know, it became really evident for a lot of us to, that we were dealing with something we had no idea was going on. Right. That we were holding our breath for a significant period of time. And I yeah. feel like it's holding the, like, and, and I am a equal opportunity traumatic experience person for the people who are MAGA or Trump supporters or honors or whatever, like their experience is real to them and they are experiencing significant trauma and they genuinely think that like the world is ending for them. I know because so, I don't want to get too political either, but my wife and I were watching them storm the Capitol and we were both like, they look so sad and unhappy. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're, they're all walking around. They don't look victorious. They don't look good. They look angry and they look unhappy and you kind of start to feel bad. And I don't, I'm not putting them down. You know, I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to condescend or anything, but it's just, there was definitely like an unhappiness going on. Definitely. It's a, above and beyond just being patriotic. Oh, for sure. And I mean, that's with, with social media and propaganda. It's like it, it, they are being fed a narrative that is an extremely inflammatory, negative, like, you know, like fear mongering narrative. And so, of course, they're going to be shrunk, like, you know, shoulders shrugged, heart center, like collapsed, um, you know, head down, um, angry, because that's the like universe, that's what they're surrounding themselves with. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people in the psychic, especially people who have a healthy relationship um, with their spirituality or a healthy relationship with psychedelics in this case, look at them and you're like, everybody looks so unhappy. And it's like, I'm happy and grounded and fine. And like, you know, moving forward on a, on a growth path or genuinely concerned about the world, but like have a, have an optimistic outlook. Yeah. Um, and have hope. And I think that's really um, uh, like hope and like a, a sense of belonging. And I think that a spiritual practice, whether that is religious based, um, like non-dual based or psychedelic based, I think is the thing that is helping people when we go through um, like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Like literally a plague. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and now now another one maybe. Right, and now another one, and right, and you know, I I have the honor of living in community with uh um with some friends, and two of my friends um, who I live with are ICU nurses um, mm. who are working the COVID surge here in LA. Um, and get to come back um, home and sit with this processing of really they're like they're watching people die every day. Oh my gosh. Um, and it's you know it's part of their their chosen profession. And I think we're gonna have a lot of we're gonna have a massive mental health crisis of healthcare workers who have trauma um, coming out of this. And so it's really important for us to talk about it, for us to talk about um, the traumas that occur to us and the grief that occurs, to, that happens in our lives. Yeah, there could be, you know, we had the Gulf Wars, which seemed to last forever. 
and so many tens of thousands of soldiers coming back with PTSD, it sounds like we're going to have a wave of that from all these healthcare workers and dealing with the, the horror that they have to deal with that the rest of us honestly probably don't even know as bad as, as it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think like the bigger slap in the face to our healthcare workers um, is people who are pretending like it's not that bad. And there are frontline nurses who are saying, please stay home and people telling them to fuck off. And I'm offended by it. (laughs) Like I'm genuinely hurt because here are these people and they're genuinely just trying to pay off their nursing school loans or their med school loans. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's out there who's going like, woohoo, I went into healthcare so I could deal with a pandemic and then have people on certain news networks tell me that my job isn't important. Like it's so disrespectful. Yeah. I hear um, it. I hear it from my nursing friends that they say the same thing. And I was like, please people just stay home, stay home. Right. And, um, they're going to have a lot of trauma. Like when this is all said and done, I think a lot of them have all their walls up and they go to work every single day. And as soon as they're going to get a break, I think they're all going to have breakdowns. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to see documentaries and TV shows about the, the trauma in nursing and healthcare mm-hmm. after everything um, that you're dealing with now. Right. And I hope that, um, I hope that the research into psychedelics for PTSD, whether it's psilocybin or MDMA or cannabis or ketamine, um, I really hope that we're able to get more healthcare access for, mm-hmm. for people who are looking to go through that healing. And I also 100% as a harm reductionist know that um, that's going to be really cost prohibitive for a lot of people yeah. and that there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to be like, screw it. I guess I'll just go like eat some mushrooms with my friends because I can't afford therapy. And so we're trying to do our best to create medical options that are affordable. There's some great clinics, um, Sage Integrative Health in uh, Oakland um, has a lot of um, low income uh, donation based services, um, specifically around psychedelic therapy. And so they're slowly popping up, um, but I definitely think that um, the access, it, like the the street market or like the recreational market is going to explode um, as our drug laws start to change. And, you know, the medical community can only serve so many people. And so right. I'm a strong believer in indigenous rights. I'm a strong believer in indigenous healing. And I think that indigenous communities should start having healing circles and using medicinal plants again, whether that's peyote or wachuma or ayahuasca. Um, I think that having, you know, anybody who's experiencing trauma or looking for healing, being able to go and access community healing options, like that's how we've been doing it for thousands of years in community circles. The medical model has been around for a very short time. Um, so are you saying that like the indigenous communities should do this, but open it up to people outside of their communities to, to go and heal with them? I mean, yes and no. I think that that uh, I have no place to tell indigenous communities right, of um, course. what they can and can't do right. um, or what they should and shouldn't do. If I was an indigenous person, I would be very mad um, and carry a lot of multi-generational trauma that I think that, you know, my healing and my community healings need to come first before you open it up to everyone else. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think that Um, there are, you know, community circles that provide healing, whether it's a women's circle or, you know, the Santo Daime here in Los Angeles, which is the legal ayahuasca church here. Um, they are open to non-Indigenous people, uh, joining their church and, and engaging in sacrament. 
Um, and so there are access points. Um, I think I, I'm not a huge fan of psychedelic tourism. Um, what, what do you mean by that? What is psychedelic tourism? Oh, psychedelic tourism is um, when people go, what, usually it's when um, uh, like westernized um, white people go down to Colombia or Peru and, you know, go and work with a tribes person or go, or, um, or go into an indigenous community and participate in an ayahuasca ceremony or, um, or a wachuma ceremony, depending on where you are. Um, I know that there's um, some psychedelic tourism. Um, there's a couple of healing centers um, like Rhythmia in Costa Rica, and they are mm -hmm. dedicated to ayahuasca tourism. Um, I, you know, I, I like their model. I think that they're fairly safe um, in what they do and they are open. But I also know that there's a limited supply of these medicines and we can't like strip the jungle of medicine. Um, there's a big there's a, a, a big pushback in the 5-MeO-DMT community um, mm -hmm. to save the Sonoran Desert toad because they're being, um, they're becoming endangered or um, because people are harvesting 5-MeO from them at a non-sustainable rate. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, making sure that if you are engaging in psychedelic tourism, which is going to another country and engaging in ceremony, in indigenous ceremony, but it's done in a way that is sustainable or is done in a way that is, you know, helping those indigenous communities remain sustainable and not stripping them of their resources. Is it, I mean, is it sustainable? Is it, is it a positive thing that people go down there and pay what, you know, is maybe not a whole lot of money to an American, but a lot of money to a Peruvian to have that experience? Does that end up helping or is it really a matter of, Peru, the country, the, the villages really not regulating what's happening. So they themselves, along with the tourists, are coming down and just stripping all the resources out of it. I mean, it's like a chicken or the egg situation um, in, in, um, in some situations. In Iquitos, yeah. um, I know that they're... So, so what has happened in, um, in some areas of Peru that I have caught wind of now mind you I have not been to Peru and I have not seen this firsthand and I have only heard it from some friends and some people who I know in the medicine community who have reached mm -hmm. out to me as a harm reductionist but what has been happening is some people go some people go to Peru um and engage in drinking ayahuasca and maybe these people like should not be engaging in that um, due to pre-existing mental health conditions, um, including things like psychosis or bipolar. Um, and what has happened is pretty much like you go down there and then you drink ayahuasca and you might be, you know, in, like you might have a drug induced manic state, mm. which has happened to several people, whether it's because of, an admixture or a pre-existing condition, whatever it is, but then there's no mental health resources there. And so they're like running around causing havoc in these small towns yeah. because they think that they're magical and there's like no container to catch them. And so, you know, what happens when, you know, a group from the United States comes down to Peru and drinks ayahuasca and then everybody leaves, but the one crazy guy gets left behind in the village because he refused to get on the bus. And now this village mm. is dealing with a crazy person who is running mm. around and they have no resources. Uh, and yeah, so there's a lot that can go wrong there. Right. And then that person ends up getting thrown in jail because they, you know, were, were eating somebody else's food or running around naked or, you know, any of these situations. Now, mind you, these things that I'm talking about are, you know, one in a thousand or one in 10,000. And so this isn't happening frequently, but these are the things that as a harm reductionist um, have kind of come across my plate over the past 10 years of, you know, what do you do when you are in a foreign country and you're engaging in psychedelic practice and either some you or somebody in your group has an adverse reaction and is now in a psychotic state. Yeah. Um, and so and that's that what you do happens. is you go to, you go to groups and you, you train people on these things. 
Yeah. Or I train people to kind of, or, or I at least help people investigate, you know, like look at your medical history. Like, is this the right medicine for you? The problem, one of the problems that I find is people, you know, people only want to do what they want to do. And there are definitely people who could benefit from psychiatric Western psychiatric intervention that are continually looking for healing in a psychedelic space. Does mm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so those people are like, Hey, you're not, maybe you're not the best candidate for this medicine because of your pre-existing condition. Um, and some of these things are dangerous. Like if you are on, like, you can't drink ayahuasca if you're on an SSRI, um, right. just like you can't. And so there's lots of things. And sometimes those people would rather go off their antidepressants and be in a manic state to engage in psychedelic use. We see this at Burning Man actually every year, um, whether it's in the medical station or in a sanctuary space or as a Black Rock Ranger, you know, you see somebody who's like, I stopped taking my meds because I wanted the drugs to work. Right. And now I haven't slept in four days. Oh. Well, or, I mean, you're not sleeping for four days anyway, right? Right, exactly. But it's also a like, and, and, you know, what am I supposed to do? And with some of these, like specifically with lithium, like it's dangerous to stop taking your lithium without titrating down. And so just having the resources to, to kind of ask, like, is psychedelic use right for me? There are all of these questions that you kind of need to ask yourself. Um, And so people come to me or communities come to me saying, you know, how do we make a ceremony safer? And, you know, we'll go through a checklist of, you know, like who there is CPR certified. I think every I think every adult should be CPR certified Um, Mm -hmm. in in America. It's a it's you probably won't need to use it. But if you're in a situation where you do. Um, it definitely could save a life, literally. <laughs> and so, so the people like who run these um, ceremonies, whether they're, you know, somewhat sanctioned or completely underground, do they, do they come to you and say, hey, what do we need to be trained on, certified on? How do we make sure that we have all the resources we need to provide a safe, um, reduced harm environment? Do they come to you yeah. for that? Yes, Definitely. Do they usually come, um, do they come to you proactively or do they come to you in a kind of an, Oh shit, we just had a really bad experience. You know, obviously we need to know more, you know, are they proactively looking to do the right thing or are they sometimes kind of caught by surprise? Like, Oh, we should probably should have thought of this. Um, it's, there's less and it's interesting. There's less of a like, Oh shit, we need to do this. And usually what happens is somebody comes to me and says, Hey, I would like, I went to a ceremony in this community and I really think that they could benefit from talking mm. to you. Can I connect you with them? And I'd be like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like I'll talk to, you know, wh- whomever um, about. Which how is funny. Cause that's exactly them. what was in my thoughts right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, there are these beautiful people who do this thing. I wonder if they've done this and if they're prepared, cause I would sure hate for something to go wrong have them not equipped to handle it and have that on their conscience. Yep. Yes. Yes. Um, And I would have to say that, you know, I've kind of learned all of these safety things um, from like learned experience from mistakes made from, Oh, like a, Oh shit situation where I wish we had this here. Now we definitely have that, this thing here, you know, I definitely, um, have an AED anytime somebody is using psychedelics or, or if there's a ceremony um, you should have, or there's a public event, even if you're not um, having an AED on site, which is uh, the, the, if you're having a heart attack, it restarts your heart. Oh, it's a, it's um, a machine. It's a device. Yeah, it's a machine. Yeah. It's a device. It, they're in every public area. They're in every mall. They're in every school. They're, they're everywhere um, in America. Um, And I think that if you're having a ceremony um, and there are people who are engaging in use that might, that might increase somebody's heart rate or increase somebody's body temperature, that you should have a, have a a robust first aid kit 
and Mm. a safety plan of like, if somebody does slip and fall and like slip and fall in the bathroom and dislocate their shoulder or hit their head on something. And so it kind of gets to the point where um, you you should know where your closest hospital is. You should have a plan. If If there are a lot of people participating in a ceremony, I think that you should like hire a sober EMT hmm. to hang out in the other room. What, what do you for, consider a lot, a yeah. number of people? Like what, is there a number in your mind where you would draw the lines at 25 people? Is it seven people? I is mean, it 800? <laughs> definitely. I mean, um, you know, anything, anything that's like more structured. So, you know, if it's like you and like a group of friends, if it's like four or five people at a house, like hanging out and, and it's like a, Hey, let's, let's engage in this. If it's going to be a structured ceremony, um, anywhere between 10 to probably 30 people, there are, I mean, there are ceremonies that range from up. Like I, especially when there are um, well-known medicine people who are traveling and like maybe a, a, a famous musician or something that's coming through that, that um, those circles can get to 50, 60, 70 people. Holy cow. And I think that that's huge. Um, yeah. um, and, and people do it and they do it with, you know, a stat, like they have attendants who are, who are there, who, you know, are hopefully assigned less than 10 people to make sure that they're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think, you know, having a robust first aid kit and, and life-saving equipment that can be used easily um, is definitely something that if you're engaging in regular use, you should invest in. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point because I really don't hear about that. You know, in fact, even even now during this pandemic, I see people talking about, you know, circles and, and getting together. And I, I think, well, that's not really safe. And so you have to wonder what, you know, what else they're not not really doing safety wise. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, I definitely it's concerning. And, you know, people are doing the safety protocols, however they see fit in their communities. I tend to err on the side of being extra safe Um, when it comes to like community healing and safety. I also, um, you know, in research, uh, our informed consent document that we give to a study subject is like, I don't know, 25, 26 pages of information of exactly what's going to happen and treatment. And I think that there should be informed consent for all communal psychedelic use, um, including things like um, psychedelic use should never include any sexual touch because you're in an altered state or sexual touch that is that that has not been discussed and consented to like in a sober state. Right. So definitely like if you and your wife take MDMA and you guys already have an established relationship that has sexual boundaries, like, and you guys discuss it ahead of time, you guys can like snuggle and have some intimacy. But if you're in a community setting, um, like, and you're getting altered, if you're engaging in psychedelic use or getting altered, like there should be a, a hard line about what is allowed and what isn't allowed when it comes to not only sexual touch, but physical touch in general. Hmm. Um, Because for some people, especially trauma survivors, if they are in an altered state and having a challenging experience and somebody comes by and puts their hand on their shoulder and it Hmm. triggers them even more, um, then we're causing harm. And so, especially when working in sanctuary spaces, we have like a hard, like, you know, I can hold your hand and I can put my hand on your shoulder consensually. And I will always ask you before I touch you. Yeah, that's good. That happened to a friend of mine. He was in a deep, deep space. And one of the facilitators came over and kind of put his arm around him and hugged him. And it really threw him, you know, it, it really took his journey into an unwanted space. Right. And so being able to 
engage in these conversations um, with other people who you might be participating in ceremony with or engaging in psychedelic use with, really talking about, you know, I like to um, safety plan. This is for festivals and, and talking about festivals makes me sad because of COVID and everything yeah. got canceled. But I genuinely um, encourage people to talk to their friends. Like if you're at a party, if you're at a festival and you're um, planning on taking psychedelics um, with your group of friends, I think you should be able to sit down with your group of friends and say, hey, if I'm not feeling well, or if I'm having a challenging experience, please take me to the sanctuary. Or will one of you guys walk me back to camp because I'm just gonna like chill out in my tent for the rest of the night. And then somebody will probably say, hey, you being alone doesn't feel safe. Is there, you know, can we take you to somebody? Um, but the last thing that you, anybody wants is for like a group of friends to take some psychedelics at a party and one person is having a challenging experience and the other ones want to go party and then it causes conflict between the group of friends. Hmm. Yeah. So having a plan ahead of time, here's what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. And so make a plan of like, if somebody's having a hard time, like maybe it's like, if somebody's having a hard time, then the group agrees that we're going to hang out in camp for the rest of the night. Right. Yeah. Right? That's, that sounds, yeah, that sounds like you have to have that in place or else it could end up really bad. Right. Exactly. Well then, and then you get the friends who are like, but I came here to party and this is my vacation. And then they leave the friend or they, you know, find somebody else to go off with, or they just abandon the group entirely. And then the whole group is worried about the one friend who ran off to the party. Mm -hmm. And so really being able to kind of talk to your friends about like safety planning. Like if I'm having a hard time, these are the things that I like. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and smart. being able to communicate that or, you know, have the buddy system. If you're in a big group of people of being like, well, like, you know, you're my buddy and we're in this together and I've committed to, to being by your side for the evening. Right. Yeah. No matter what happens. Right. No matter what happens, I'm, I'm your person tonight. Nice. And just having that, is the thing that really um, that that can really um, shift um, anxiety around it can shift you know a, a, a yeah. lot of like uh, energy and worry about like what happens if something goes wrong. Being able to say, "Hey, let's talk about it first, Kind of like what you're doing with your podcast, Stuart. <laughs> Just talking. Um, Right. Is we're just talking and we're telling stories and hopefully people will like normalize it. Like, oh yeah, I should ask my friends that question. Yeah. So how, how do you help people with this? I know you've got, we talked a little bit about your business. Um, what do you want to share? Like what uh, people wanted to find it, you know, tell us a little bit about what, what the business is, what you can do for people, how they find you, that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, uh, you can find me um, on the internet at uh, www.nestharmreduction.com. Um, and Nest provides a couple of services. Um, one is we do tailor-made harm reduction, um, like custom harm reduction trainings for your group or organization. Um, we also provide, um, uh, in those trainings, we talk about things like um, how to integrate a challenging experience or, you know, how to give yourself self-care. If you're the one who's doing, who's holding space or doing the work um, uh, of being like holding that container, like providing some uh, support around that of, you know, how to resource yourself and how the signs and symptoms of, um, when you need to escalate, um, when we think, you know, maybe there's something else at play here. Um, and so really kind of helping communities, um, harm reduction communities, um, uh, increase their skills. Mm -hmm. um, I provide telehealth therapy, um, and that psychotherapy, um, uh, and that's mostly depression, anxiety. Um, there are some people who I see who, um, come in and are psychedelic curious, I do um, occasionally do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, depending on the, um, like on a case-by-case -case 
scenario, if that's mm-hmm. something that somebody's interested in. Um, I work with a couple of pre- prescribing psychiatrists. Um, and then I also do kind of um, like corporate wellness consulting. Oh, wow. And so that's like, if you are, um, wh- whether it's a corporation or if you're like your own harm reduction organization, like if you wanted to be like, you want to know something, I want to start a sanctuary space for my community or I want to start my own um, like booth at a festival or something like that. We, I provide um, support and structure in helping people create their own programming. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and then I also do uh, uh, kind of just basic trauma resolution, compassion fatigue, professional burnout training um, that's non-psychedelic. Um, that helps uh, first responders and people who work in uh, in caregiving some uh, resources and training in, hmm. in in how to resolve some of their burnout. Awesome! Well, that's that's a lot of amazing things you do. I really uh, am grateful you're out there doing that for all these people. Yeah, um, it's really fun. It's it's really a, it's a passion. It's a passion for me. And I feel so blessed and lucky that I get to kind of work in this adjunct psychedelic world of yeah. helping people, you know, be safer. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Is there uh, any last things you want to get out there? Is there anything I didn't ask you any, any uh, other tidbits you want to leave people with before we wrap up? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. I was going to okay. say, um, uh, yeah, uh, any last tidbits would be, you know, if you're out there and you're curious about psychedelics or if you're curious, like, or if you're curious about, you know, one of your, or if you're concerned about a friend's psychedelic use, like feel free to like reach out and ask the community. Um, there are a lot of great online resources out there, um, including things like Arrowid, um, and I'll be coming out with a, a harm reduction uh, training in the next couple of months that I've been working on. That's going to be a full virtual harm reduction training. Um, nice. Yeah. And so really like ask questions. Um, that's what I'd like to tell everybody. Ask questions. Yeah. Ask <laughs> questions, get information. Don't just dive in, make it a deliberate thing you do with intentions and, and, and a full understanding of creating your little container or joining a, a safe container. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Creating a safe container, joining a safe container and kind of setting the example for your friends. Like maybe you were in an, maybe you are in an environment in which there isn't safe use going on. Like I encourage you, the listener to, um, you know, make those positive changes in reducing harm and creating safety um, in your own community and in your own use. I love it. I love it. Because that's exactly how I felt listening to you, Erica. It was, hey, I need to introduce some of these concepts and to, to some of these people that I know in some of these circles and these containers. So I think if we all take your advice and listen to the awesome stuff you had to share today and make our own little spaces safer, that we could end up even, even, accidentally helping some people out there, you know, help them avoid harm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as a, uh, actually one more thing, which yeah. is, um, uh, I know I, I talked about getting CPR certified or like getting an AED, but I definitely think in drug use as a harm reductionist, I cannot, um, not say, um, carry Narcan, get nar like get narcan trained if you don't know what narcan is it is um a intranasal substance that you can spray up somebody's nose if they're having an opiate overdose and it will reverse the opiate overdose um mm. and there's been instances where there have been um tainted uh ketamine and cocaine drug supplies that are tainted with fentanyl and having narcan on hand will save somebody's life and wow. so Wherever I go, if I leave my house, I have a dose of Narcan in my purse, no matter what, because wow. um, I have a, it, it's one of those things where if you have it on you, it genuinely will save a life. And so as a harm reductionist and to all of your listeners, please go out there and get Narcan trained. Um, so you are a, a safe member of your community. Beautiful. Yes, everybody, please go do that. Have an AED on your site, get CPR certified and carry some Narcan. 
Yes. Oh, yes. thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Erica. That was really some really great information that I think, I really think everybody needs to hear all this. I don't, I don't feel like maybe it's just me in my own little cave, but I don't feel like I'm hearing enough of this. So I'm so grateful to you to come on and share this because it's just obviously so important. Oh, thanks so much, Stuart. It was such a pleasure. That concludes this edition of the Stoned Ape Reports. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Stoned Ape Comedy and subscribe to our newsletter at www.stonedapecomedy.com. Again, thanks for listening and catch you next time, Stoned Apes.